Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This week's episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled Justinian Sand. During the 5th century, while the Western Roman Empire was falling to the Goths, the Eastern Empire centered at Constantinople looked like it would carry on for centuries. Though it identified as Roman, historians refer to the Eastern region as the Byzantine Empire and era. It gets the title Byzantine from the city's name before Constantine made it his new capital. During the 5th century, the entire empire, both East and West, went into decline. But in the 6th century, the Emperor Justinian I led a major revival of Roman civilization. Reigning for nearly 40 years, Justinian not only brought about a reflowering of culture in the East, he attempted to reassert control over those lands in the West that had fallen to barbarian control. A diverse picture of Justinian the Great has emerged. For years, the standard way to see him was as an intelligent, ambitious, energetic, gregarious leader, plagued by an unhealthy dose of vanity. Dare I say it? Well, why not? He wanted to make Rome great again. While that's been the traditional way of understanding Justinian, more recently that image has been edited slightly by giving his wife and queen, Theodora, a more prominent role in fueling his ambitions. Whatever else we might say about this husband and wife team, they were certainly devout in their faith. Justinian's reign was bolstered by the careers of several capable generals who were able to translate his desire to retake the West into reality. The most famous of these generals was Belisarius, a military genius on par with men like Hannibal, Caesar, and Alexander. During Justinian's reign, portions of Italy, North Africa, and Spain were reconquered and put under Byzantine rule. The Western emperors in Rome's long history tended to be more austere in their demonstrations of authority by keeping their wardrobe simple and customs related to their rule rather modest as befitted the idea of the Augustus as princeps, that is, the first citizen. Eastern emperors went the other way and eschewed humility in favor of an oriental, or what we might call a Persian model of majesty. It began with Constantine, who broke the long-held Western tradition of imperial modesty by arraying himself as a glorious Eastern monarch. Following Constantine, Eastern emperors wore elaborate robes, crowns, and festooned their courts with ostentatious symbols of wealth and power. Encouraged by Theodora, Justinian advanced this movement and made his court a grand showcase. When people appeared before the emperor, they had to prostrate themselves as though bowing before a god. The pomp and ceremony of Justinian's court was quickly duplicated by the church at Constantinople because of the close tie between church and state in the east. It was this ambition for glory that moved Justinian to embark on a massive building campaign. He commissioned the construction of entire towns, roads, bridges, baths, palaces, and a host of churches and monasteries. His enduring legacy was the Church of the Holy Wisdom, or also known as the Cathedral of St. Sophia, the main church of Constantinople. The Hagia Sophia was the epitome of a new style of architecture which was centered on the dome, the largest to be built to that time. Visitors to the church would stand for hours in awe, staring up at the dome, incredulous that such a span could be built by a human being. Though the rich interior facade of the church has been gutted by years of conflict, the basic structure stands to this day as one of Istanbul's premier tourist attractions. 
Justinian was no mean theologian in his own right. As emperor, he wanted to unite the church under one creed and worked hard to resolve the major dispute of the day, the divide between the Orthodox faith as expressed in the Council of Chalcedon and the Monophysites. Now, by way of review, the Monophysites followed the teachings of Cyril of Alexandria, who'd contended with Nestorius over the nature of Christ. Nestorius emphasized the human nature of Jesus, while Cyril emphasized Jesus' deity. The followers of both took their doctrines too far, so that the Nestorians who went east into Persia tended to diminish the deity of Christ, while the Cyrillians who went south into Egypt elevated Jesus' deity at the expense of his humanity. They put such an emphasis on his deity that they became monophysites, meaning one-natureites. Justinian tried to reconcile the Orthodox faith centered at Constantinople with the monophysites based in Egypt by finessing the words used to describe the faith. Even though the Council of Chalcedon had officially ended the dispute, there was still a rift between the church at Constantinople and that in Egypt. Justinian tried to clarify how to understand the natures of Jesus as God and human. Did he have one nature or two? And if two, how do those two natures coexist in the Son of God? Were they separate and distinct or merged into something new? If they were distinct, was one superior to the other? This was the crux of the debate that the Council of Chalcedon had struggled with and which both Cyril and Nestorius had contended over. Justinian had partial success in getting moderate monophysites to agree with his theology. He was helped by the work of a monk named Leo of Byzantium. Leo proposed that in Christ, his two natures were so commingled and united that they formed one nature, which he identified as the Lagos. In 544, Emperor Justinian issued an edict condemning some pro-Nestorian writings. Many Western bishops thought the edict a scandalous refutation of the Chalcedonian Creed. They assumed that Justinian had just come out as a monophysite. Pope Vigilius condemned the edict and broke off fellowship with the Patriarch of Constantinople because he supported the emperor's edict. Shortly thereafter, when Pope Vigilius visited Constantinople, he did an abrupt about-face, adding his own censure to the now-condemned pro-Nestorian writings. Then, in 550, after several bishops criticized this reversal, Vigilius did another and said the writings weren't prohibited after all. Nothing like being a stalwart pillar of an unwavering stand. Vigilius was consistent. He consistently wavered when under pressure. All of this created so much controversy that in 553, Justinian called the Fifth Ecumenical Council at Constantinople. Though it was supposed to be a council of the whole church, Pope Vigilius refused to attend. At Justinian's demand, the council affirmed his original edict of 544, further condemning anyone who supported the pro-Nestorian writings. The emperor banished Vigilius for his refusal to attend, saying that he would be reinstated only on condition of accepting the council's decision. And guess what Vigilius did? Yep, he relented and endorsed the council's finding. So the result was that the Chalcedonian Creed was reinterpreted along far more monophysite lines. Jesus' deity was elevated to the foreground while his humanity was relegated to a distant backwater. This became the official position of the Eastern Orthodox Church. But Justinian's desire to bring unity was never achieved. The Western bishops refused to recognize the Council of Constantinople's interpretation of the Chalcedonian Creed. 
And while the new spin on Jesus' nature was embraced in the East, the hardcore Monophysites of Egypt stood their ground. They'd come to hold their theology with a fierce regional loyalty. To accept Justinian's formulation was deemed a compromise that they saw not only as heretical, but as unpatriotic. They vehemently refused to come under the control of Constantinople. What Justinian was unable to do by theological compromise and diplomacy, he attempted by force. After all, as they say, war is just diplomacy by other means. And as Justinian might say, what good is it being king if I can't bash a few heads whenever I want? The emperor also sought to eradicate the last vestiges of paganism throughout the empire. He commanded both civil officials and church leaders to seek out all pagan cultic practices and pre-Christian Greek philosophy and bring an immediate end to them. He closed the schools of Athens, the last institutions teaching Greek philosophy. He allowed the Jews to continue their faith but sought to regulate their practices. He decreed the death penalty for Manichaeans and other heretics like the Montanists. And when his harsh policies stirred up rebellion, well, he was ruthless in putting it down. Toward the end of his reign, his wife Theodora's monophysite beliefs influenced him to move even further in that direction. He sought to recast the Fifth Council's findings into a new form that would gain greater monophysite support. This new view has been given the tongue-twisting label of Aftartodosetism. According to this view, even Jesus' physical body was divine, so that from conception to death, it didn't change. This means that Jesus didn't suffer or know the desires and passions of mortals. When he tried to impose this doctrine on the church, the vast majority of bishops refused to comply. So, Justinian made plans to enforce their compliance. But he died before the campaign could begin, much to the relief of said bishops. Justinian took an active hand in ordering the church in more than just theology. He passed laws dealing with various aspects of church life. He appointed bishops, assigned abbots to monasteries, ordained priests, managed church lands, and oversaw the conduct of the clergy. He forbade the practice of simony, that is, the sale of church offices. Being a church official could be quite lucrative, and so the practice of simony was a frequent problem. The emperor also forbade the clergy from attending chariot races and the theater. Now, this seems harsh if we think of these as just mere sporting or cultural events. Eh, they weren't. Both events were more often than not scenes of moral debauchery, where ribald behavior was quite common. One did not attend a race for polite or dignified company. The races were, well, racy. And the theater was a place where perversions were enacted on stage. That Justinian forbade clergy from attending these events means they had been common for them to do so before. He authorized bishops to function in a quasi-civil fashion by having them oversee public works, by enforcing laws against vice. In some places, bishops even served as governors. It was under Justinian that the church became an instrument of the state. That process had begun under Constantine, but it wasn't until the 6th century under Justinian that it reached its zenith. Christianity continued to extend its influence along the borders of the empire. With the reconquest of North Africa, the Arianism that had taken root there was finally eradicated. The faith moved up the Nile into what today we know as Sudan. The Berbers of North Africa were also converted. And in Europe, the barbarian tribes along the Danube River were reached. The divide between the Monophysites and the Orthodox that Justinian had tried to heal 
continued to plague the church in the 7th century when a new thread emerged, that of Islam. Emperor after emperor knew that a fragmented church meant a weakened society which would be easy prey to the new invaders. And so they worked feverishly to bring about theological unity. Let's see, how do we bring the Orthodox and Monophysites together? Well, Sergius, the Patriarch of Constantinople, had an idea. Based on what were thought to be the writings of one of the early church fathers named Dionysius, Sergius thought that he found support for a new idea that could reconcile the two sides. He said that while Jesus was both divine and human, he worked by only one energy. Now, this sounded great to the Monophysites of Egypt, and it looked like for a time that there would be unity. But other bishops cried foul, and so Sergius quickly shifted ground and said, Okay, forget about one energy, and how about this? Christ was both divine and human, but possessed only one will, which was a merging of the two natures. Pope Honorius put his stamp of approval on this view, and now, with the agreement of the two most influential churches, it looked like a theological slam dunk was in the works. So, in 638, Emperor Heraclius passed an edict expressing Sergius's view and forbidding further debate. The emperor passed an edict, so that settles it, right? Uh, not quite. When Pope Honorius died, the next pope announced that Jesus had two wills. Oh, and furthermore, that was the real position of Honorius. He'd just been misunderstood by Patriarch Sergius. Each pope thereafter affirmed Jesus' divine and human wills as distinct, though in harmony with each other. This view held sway in the West, as opposed to Sergius's view, which became the position of the East. When, in 648, the issue threatened to once again tear the church and empire in two, Emperor Constans II declared that all debate about one or two wills or energies was now off limits. But when you know it, when word of the ban reached Europe a year later, Pope Martin I called a synod to discuss the issue, deciding that Jesus had two wills and denounced the Patriarch of Constantinople. The bishops also said, how dare the emperor tell us what we can and can't talk about? Constans II decided to show the pope how he dared, had him arrested, hauled to the capital where he was condemned, tortured, and banished. Martin died in exile. Then a funny thing happened. Not funny, really. Tragic, more like. North Africa, that region of the empire that had been so fastidiously devoted to monophotism, was conquered by Islam. And suddenly the debate lost its main voice. So, Constantine IV called a sixth ecumenical council, again in Constantinople, in 680. This council officially declared the idea of one energy and one will in Christ heretical. Jesus had two wills, one divine, the other human. The council claimed its views were in accord with a similar council held in Rome a year before, under the auspices of Pope Agatho. Most church historians consider the Sixth Council to be the last at which the nature of Jesus was the primary theological consideration. And to be sure, the Nestorians continued to spread eastward as they made their way to China, and there were still pockets of monophotism in Egypt. But in both the eastern and western regions of the empire, orthodoxy, or what is called Catholic Christianity, now held sway. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.